I wish I could go back to that 20-year-old person and be like, look, uh, all those people you think are talking about you, they're not. They have super busy lives. They don't care. They're just trying to get stuff done. And if they are the kind of person that's talking about you and judging you, then they are not the kind of person whose opinion you really need to worry about. That was Peter Searcy. He's been with the Federal Bureau of Investigation for over 15 years of his career. Most recently, he holds the title of Head of Recruitment for the FBI. He was even able to develop the first ever annual recruitment strategy for the organization, which was executed over all 56 FBI field offices. Thank you, Peter, for joining us today. I'm sure that everyone listening is really looking forward to hear more about you and your story. No, again, thank you. I mean, obviously, uh, awesome opportunity to talk about the Bureau and everything that's going on there. So I really appreciate that. So before we actually get into the who you are, what you do, I just would really love for you to walk me through the series of events that have led you to where you are today within your career. Yeah, so uh, great question. So currently, I'm the um, head of hiring for the FBI. That means that I um, hire all uh, employees for all 56 field offices, our 72 international locations, all special agents, uh, intel analysts, the 400 other jobs at the FBI. Uh, I have the national recruiting plan, marketing, um, social media for advertising, and uh, you know some other things like uh, you know position classification, workforce planning. Uh, super awesome job, love it. Uh, it's interesting. So I started. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Super shy uh, kid, super shy in high school. Uh, my parents said, "We love you, but you must uh, go away to college at least 10, <laughs> at least ten hours away by car." Uh, so my dad was an engineer, so he drew a circle on a map, uh, and I was only allowed to apply to college outside the circle. Um, so I ended up at the College of William Mary in Virginia, which is ten and a half hours away by car. Uh, that met the requirement. Um, uh, great school for me. Uh, you know, I was an international relations major. Thought I'd focus on Europe. Thought I'd go study abroad in Spain. Uh, ended up taking Japanese in college on a total whim. My whole career went sideways. I ended up teaching English in Japan after I graduated. Uh, lived there for two years. Um, that really helped sort of break me out of my shell of uh, being in the classroom, uh, teaching seventh, eighth, and ninth grade elementary school and adults uh, for two years. Awesome experience. Uh, came back. All my friends from college were from Prince County, Virginia. So I moved in with them, saw an ad on the internet, hey, the FBI needs linguists. Uh, sure, uh, applied, ended up starting as a Japanese uh, translator, Japanese language analyst for the Bureau. Uh, did that for a couple of years, then moved into management and foreign language program, and most of my early career uh, was there. Uh, the Bureau has about 600 uh, full-time employee translators and about 800 uh, contract uh, translators and interpreters. Uh, and if you think about uh, just like you see the FBI on TV, you know, the FBI uh, is watching the bad guys in the warehouse doing their bad guy thing. Uh, and the FBI is in the van outside ready to go, uh, but the bad guys are speaking uh, <laughs> Urdu or Spanish or Vietnamese. Uh, so, you know, it's just, you know, that's what we need linguists for, right? Um, so did a lot of that work where we spread the work all around the country, make sure that the highest priority pieces get worked by the available linguists. That was awesome. Uh, did that for a couple of years, then moved into the um, national hiring for the language, uh, contract linguist language analyst assets. Uh, so that's how I sort of got sideways into human resources, like a lot of people in this field. I loved it. Uh, loved talking about the FBI, loved talking about the program, really passionate about that. Um, then, uh, you know, did that for a couple of years, and that whole group was sort of reorged into our human resources department. 
uh, and then a new assistant director of human resources came in, uh, made me his special assistant for a couple of months, and then I was lucky enough to, to get this job after um, the gentleman who was my boss retired. So um, definitely been sort of a um, take the opportunities as they come along, uh, be amazing where you sit, uh, and try not to be afraid of new things, uh, career path, you know, not uh, super planned, uh, more like take advantage of opportunities, but, um, you know, I love where I am right now, uh, you know, and it's, I feel really fortunate to be here. Yeah, that's so awesome. And I guess more talking about how you've come from a completely, I guess, non-traditional background, having an international relations degree with teaching in Japan and slowly, I guess, kind of getting molded and bred into the senior executive in HR and recruiting. What are some of the challenges and hurdles that you faced along the way? Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely want to be clear, um, you know, looking back on it, uh, super fortunate and super privileged to, you know, come from a family with college educated parents, you know, who valued education, um, valued that for me. Um, you know, I know that a lot of people don't have uh, that same, um, that same, uh, you know, set of fortunate circumstances. So I, I mean, I definitely want to acknowledge that. Uh, I think, you know, for me, uh, you know, biggest challenge was uh, being an introvert who struggled to um, feel comfortable, you know, talking to people um, and really expressing themselves. So that was something I really had to um, work on in the bureau, right? So, I mean, I was always very confident, you know, I was a total nerd, you know, very confident about my ability to be smart, learn new things, be successful, like did not have a lot of concern about that, but um, yeah. you know, was my personality right uh, for the FBI? Uh, did I fit into the organization? Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like uh, that's something I always thought a lot about and worked on. And I think one of the best pieces of advice I got um, quite late in my career, but I think it really sort of clicked in is um, you don't have to change your personality uh, to fit into the organization. You just have to figure out uh, what aspects of your personality to bring to the fore or to put, you know, maybe in the background in any one situation. Um, or, uh, you know, sometimes uh, you would say, hey, I have a pretty loud uh, personality. Um, so you're at an eight uh, and sometimes I need you at a four. Say it's still you, uh, but maybe just not at, you know, volume eight, maybe a little less. But that was sort of a great, a way for me to think about it. And that really sort of, I think, helped me, um, you know, make peace with, you know, how I could exist in an organization uh, that has an amazing mission, uh, but maybe sometimes like I felt like I personally struggled with a little bit more. And, you know, I really felt like once I, you know, sort of sort of thought of it that way, uh, you know, I was able to really, um, you know, be more successful and, you know, feel more confident. Yeah, and I guess more so talking about you and your fit at the FBI, you talked about how there's an incredible mission at the FBI. Could you talk more about what about the organization really resonates with you and has kept you there for the last 15 years? Uh, yeah, so uh, in the FBI, we often talk about our mission as um, to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. It's very clear, mm -hmm. very concise, and um, you know, it's not words uh, for us. I think that um, you know, because I've been fortunate enough to work in a lot of parts of the FBI, you know, I've had a lot of exposure to uh, field office operations and a lot of the varied mission sets, um, counterterrorism, counterintel, criminal, 
cyber, the international um, mission uh, prior to coming into human resources. So, you know, I was really able to see the amazing impact that the FBI um, has on local communities, uh, not just the work of the special agents, but victim uh, specialists, uh, community outreach specialists, and, um, you know, just the positive work protecting uh, people and making sure that, you know, everybody's voice is heard. It is, um, it is definitely a very real, tangible thing uh, for us and something we talk about in human resources um, that we are literally building the future of the FBI. And with every, you know, body that we hire, with every uh, person that we put in place, those people are going to go on to do amazing things. And that, um, you know, agent that we hire today uh, is going to comfort that victim tomorrow, is going to, you know, dis uh, mm -hmm. defeat that terrorism, um, you know, suspect later, is going to disrupt that, you know, uh, violent criminal organization uh, 15 years from now. Um, and so we can see that direct line, um, you know, between what we're doing now and the amazing thing that those people get to do when they come in the door. Uh, and that is, oh, that's the best. That's awesome. And that, that's what gets me in the door every day, for sure. Yeah, that's incredible. That actually kind of answers my next question, which is what wakes you up in the morning, but moving more outside the scope of you and your role at the FBI more specifically, I'm just curious to know more about Peter and what Peter does or enjoys doing outside the scope of the nine to five? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I mentioned uh, before we started recording, I have two kids. Uh, so of course we spend a lot of time as a family, uh, really enjoy each other. We laugh a lot, uh, giant nerd. Uh, so of course, you know, um, in my spare time, uh, you know, I might be playing board games or D&D uh, &D with the girls uh, or, um, really? oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I write uh, science fiction and fantasy short stories also. So I have one short story published. So I try to do some wow. writing in my uh, free time and then uh, do a lot of volunteer work, uh, both with the schools that the girls, um, uh, you know, are in. And then I um, volunteer as staff at a uh, science fiction and fantasy writers uh, conference every year. I'm up as Vineyard. Uh, it was canceled this year because of COVID-19, uh, but um, you know, very involved in that for probably the last eight years. Uh, you know, we bring uh, writers and um, students together uh, to, you know, develop their craft and, you know, teach them about the industry. Uh, so that's like really exciting, something I really enjoy. Wow, that's, that's awesome. And I guess as a self-proclaimed sci-fi fan, I'm curious to know what are your top three sci-fi movie picks oh, or book picks yes. that people must read? Uh, yeah, so first of all, anybody who's not watched The Expanse, uh, please run, uh, do not walk to watch that. That is amazing. Um, so we're definitely, um, we definitely binge watched that uh, this year. Um, my, girl, my girls and I, uh, when my wife wants a night off uh, and she goes and has uh, time with her friends, uh, we have been binging The Dragon Prince on Netflix, which is amazing storytelling. Oh, I love that show. Yeah, oh amazing God. storytelling. And then, of course, uh, my wife and I are both hardcore Star Trek nerds. Um, Next Gen is our mm. Star Trek. That was when we grew up. That was the Star Trek that was on TV. Uh, so we're really loving um, Star Trek Discovery right now on streaming uh, and just <laughs> waiting for that. Uh, and then, of course, my wife is like, when is The Witcher Season 2 uh, going to come out? Why can't it get here uh, fast enough? Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of, obviously, we're not going to movies these days, so uh, a lot of streaming, uh, for sure. 
but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so you know, just really enjoy uh, great storytelling. I love the current trend to uh, make sure to include more uh, diverse voices in the writing and production of the shows, but also you know, showing for uh, kids and audiences a more diverse you know character set. Um, you know, I think that's just a great you know way to. Um, you know, showcase the best of the human condition uh, to show all of it, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's completely awesome. And I guess you talked a lot about how you like to write in your free time and just continually learn. And I was wondering, what are some other ways that you try and implement lifelong learning within your day-to-day life? Uh, yeah, I think that is an awesome question. I think, you know, uh, one of the things I would definitely want to say, if we're thinking about what is important if you want to be successful, I think you definitely have to commit yourself to lifelong learning and what we often call learning agility, uh, this idea that in the course of any career, um, you're definitely going to have to learn new things. You're going to have to learn new skills for things that literally are not invented when you start your career, like how you look at Zoom, right? Um, So I would say for me, like I do a couple strategies. Um, I try to have, you know, maybe I I have multiple books going on at once, but I always try to have at least one nonfiction book about something I don't know anything about, um, not necessarily um, HR, but maybe some random thing. So right now I'm reading um, uh, Because Internet by Gretchen McCullough, which is sort of like a linguistic theory of um, how internet uh, technology is changing language syntax and texting. Um, awesome. Uh, and then also The Design of Everyday Things by uh, Don Norman, which is basic design principles for human interaction, kind of like user interface principles. That's super good. Mm-hmm. I would say like um, work. Uh, it's really important that you're always connected to the larger industry. So for us, you know, human resources, I mean, obviously everybody has uh, human resources. So in the FBI, we shouldn't be trying to reinvent the wheel. So we should be making sure that we're connected to uh, podcasts, webinars, uh, blogs, you know, what's going on in the industry. Um, there's a huge HR presence on Twitter. Um, you know, just to make sure that you're learning what conversations are taking place. Are you all struggling with the same thing? Uh, which always makes me feel great about my own problems. Uh, I'm like, oh man, 100%. yeah, this is hard. So everybody's struggling with it. Um, I would say also, um, uh, it's really important that you have access to uh, voices and backgrounds that are not your own. Uh, so depending on how uh, your your own social circle is, um, you need to make sure you're seeking out uh, channels to diversify that. So I use Twitter for that, for example. So uh, Twitter is my social media channel for uh, listening and making sure I get uh, diverse voices from, let's say, African-American, Native American news sources, um, you know, things like that, just so I'm hearing conversations taking place that may not be taking place in my friend group. Um, I think that uh, always brings issues to the forefront uh, that you may not otherwise be uh, aware of. And then, you know, one thing I'm a big believer in is if you have all these multiple channels of maybe low-level micro-learning in aggregate, uh, mm-hmm. those are very, very powerful. So um, I would say that would be sort of the, the strategy I would recommend is don't, don't feel like I must be in grad school at all time. Um, if I'm not taking a, you know, standard college class at any one time, that's bad. I mean, that's great if you can, uh, but that's not always accessible or affordable uh, to people. So um, there are all these other ways that you could be learning. Uh, online and just be open to it all the time. Yeah, for sure. And I guess kind of segueing more into your experiences at the FBI, this is one of my favorite questions to ask on the podcast, but I'm incredibly interested in this specific scenario because I'm curious to know what are some of the biggest misconceptions associated with your industry? 
Uh, yeah, I think we get that question a lot. I think that everybody assumes that um, uh, the FBI, everybody's an agent, uh, and they're all white dudes <laughs> in fedoras, um, or they all, um, so, you know, the good thing and the bad thing about the FBI is it's great because we are a very recognizable um, name. Uh, there's a lot of name recognition, brand recognition, if you want to call it that. Um, so we don't often have to talk to recruits about um, who the FBI is, but we do often have to say, hey, um, it's not exactly like you see on TV, right? So it's not all, um, you know, the very old school, you know, white guys in suits. Um, you know, of, you know, 37,000 people at the FBI, only 14,000 are agents. Uh, the rest are, you know, there are 499 other jobs at the FBI. Um, and so, you know, we have places for uh, Urdu linguists, architects, uh, financial accountants, um, you know, surveillance specialists, uh, contract people, you know, so a lot of it is just this misconception of like, uh, could the FBI look like me? And is there a place for me at the FBI? Uh, so I think that's one thing. Uh, and then in human resources specifically, I think uh, there's a general perception of human resources are the no people. Uh, that's where you go when you're in trouble. Um, and they're basically just waiting uh, for you to do something wrong so they can pounce on you and fire you. Um, so uh, that's not, I mean, we do do that. But uh, uh, I think I would, I would say uh, that human resources is really meant to be um, the business partner with the CEO or the executive team of the organization to make sure that, you know, whatever business goals they're trying to achieve, they have the human capital assets uh, to achieve those goals, right? That's really what the core of human resources is. Um, and I think the other thing that sometimes people don't understand about human resources is that there's a lot of emotional labor going on. So usually when you're interacting with the HR department, uh, there's a huge emotionality behind that. You're excited, you're anxious, you're nervous, you don't know you're upset. Uh, and so everybody on the HR end, uh, in addition to trying to solve that one problem or do that one task, is also always dealing with that emotional underlayer of that interaction, uh, which is uh, great, but also quite difficult uh, to be quite exhausting if you're not prepared for it. So uh, I do a lot of talking to my own staff about like, why am I so exhausted at the end of the day? I'm like, uh, all emotional labor, you're doing that. And of course, that's rapidly increased uh, and, and sort of ballooned in the COVID-19 era, uh, just because of everybody's anxiety is sort of really heightened yeah, uh, right sure. now. I guess you touched on this uh, kind of briefly uh, in your most recent answer, but I was curious to know, considering that you're recruiting for such a niche organization in terms of what they're looking for, uh, how does this actually impact your work and your recruitment strategies? Uh, yeah, so I think that uh, from a overall FBI point of view, like I sort of mentioned, you sort of take what you, what people, you know that people think about the FBI and you start there as the entry point and then you try to show them the actual reality of being the FBI, right? So um, just like um, I said earlier, uh, when I'm talking about the foreign language program, uh, people might not know the FBI is linguist, but they know what they see on TV. So you try to start with that image and you try to like say, but here's the reality. And that's a pretty effective uh, strategy uh, because people are like, oh, okay, I can see that. Um, and so that works really well for us. I think that just in the current situation, you know, a lot of our process was still very um, in-person, uh, event-oriented, in-person interviews for the special agent role. Um, and so we've really uh, had to move to 
um, things online. It's not that we weren't participating in virtual career fairs or doing interviews online, not because we were, uh, but I think you know the FBI is a slightly more conservative organization because law enforcement is a little more conservative. And so I think there is this um, uh, predilection to, but I want to see that person. I want to be face to face with that person. Mm -hmm. I want to like, you know, read them and understand them uh, more. And so there's a reluctance to move to virtual interaction unless you have to, uh, which of course now we have to. Uh, so, um, you know, that's forced us to sort of um, move a little bit further along than maybe some people were, um, you know, super comfortable with. But, you know, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's not like we can just say, uh, well, let's just wait till the pandemic is over before we recruit anybody. Um, you know, that's not a good strategy. So uh, we'll just, you know, move to virtual meet and greets. Uh, we'll move to more virtual events, host more, you know, online webinars for candidates to, you know, understand what the FBI is. Uh, like we had an internship this summer. Uh, we had all of our interns um, interact with us virtually. We allowed telework with interns for the first time ever. Uh, so, you know, we're just cha changing a lot because we have to. Yeah. And I guess talking more to the recruitment process, I know, for example, the special agent role has eight or nine different stages from start to end in terms of the recruitment. So what do you think are some of the key characteristics that the FBI looks for when they're trying to attract this top level talent? Uh, yeah, I think um, one thing that everybody thinks is true, which is not, uh, is that you have to have some kind of criminal justice, law enforcement, military background to be an FBI agent. Uh, and that is definitely not true. Um, we want people that are amazing at whatever they're, whatever they're good at, right? So if you're an accountant, uh, we want amazing accountants to try to become special agents and bring that accounting skill set forward to help us with white collar crime investigations. If you're a counselor, uh, we want you to be amazing at that uh, so that you can come in, be a special agent, bring those counseling uh, interpersonal skills to the forefront to help us confront, uh, comfort victims or uh, develop human sources or make connections with people. So, um, you know, I think that what we're really looking for is, um, you know, people that can understand that it's much more important that I do uh, great work and I'm really committed uh, to what I am passionate about or what, I great, what I'm good at uh, and bring that uh, and adapt uh, to the special agent role. Obviously, you have to be physically fit. Um, obviously, you have to be able to pass a background investigation. Um, but, you know, some of the most successful agents I know uh, did not come from a law enforcement or traditional background. We ran this ad campaign last year called Unexpected Agent, uh, really highlighting people who were um, a high school biology teacher or a computer scientist or, um, you know, whatever the, whatever the case may be, um, but just found themselves wanting to make a bigger impact on their community, wanting to give back more um, intellectually curious people that, you know, always want to um, dig into it, uh, understand more, uh, make a difference, push to make things better, right? Those are sort of those core, um, uh, not even skill sets, but, you know, um, characteristics that make amazing special agents. Um, you know, we can train you on you know, how to um, shoot a gun, how to do defensive tactics, the basics of the criminal justice code. You know, that's what you do at, when you go to the FBI Academy. Uh, so we can teach you those things. But, you know, how to be a great problem solver, how to be intellectually curious, how to have amazing people skills, that's harder to, to teach. So those are really what we're looking for. 
Yeah, and I guess I did a, I obviously did a bunch of research on you as an individual, and I came across a video called the FBI's Journey to Modern Recruiting, and you talked about how you reformed the process that was in place in the way that the FBI approached recruiting entry-level uh, roles. So I was wondering how you went about taking your current processes and then completely rehauling them to make them more efficient, more effective, and just more suitable for what the FBI is looking for. Uh, yeah, awesome question. That was a great opportunity to speak at that conference about that. Um, I think there's sort of two core principles. Like one is um, you have to uh, be honest with yourself about what is not working. Um, uh, people get very emotionally attached to a process that has developed over time uh, and is working okay, uh, but maybe not great. Uh, and so you first, you have to acknowledge like, hey, we have to make this change. And that was a big deal for the FBI. Uh, they were, you know, everybody felt very comfortable with the way things were. Um, they felt like it was producing great, you know, agent candidates. Uh, but the reality was that the external labor market had really changed in the last 15 years and we had not really caught up with that. Um, and then the second thing I think is you have to be committed to once you uh, understand that things are going to change. Um, it doesn't matter if inside somebody who's already hired, who's already in this case an agent, thinks that this is the right way to go. The reality is your applicants and the people that are trying to get into the organization and want to become special agents in this instance, it, it's the challenges that they're having, the challenges that they are facing, that, that's what you have to fix. Uh, and we had a lot of discussion where, you know, we would survey applicants and they would say, hey, this part of the process is, you know, problematic or difficult or whatever. Uh, and then inside there would be some pushback and they're like, no, they're wrong or that shows they don't have enough initiative or not enough grit. Um, and I'm like, okay, but at the end of the day, they're trying to get in and this is stopping them. So we could argue about this and still not have people or we could acknowledge that there is solid consensus on what is keeping people out and we could say we don't want to lower our standards we just want to evolve the process uh, to make things um, fair competitive easy take advantage of technology and then also realize that the labor market um, is different and we have to be a modern player in the labor market so if everybody is has a mobile friendly uh, talent acquisition uh, interface, we have to have one too. If everybody else is uh, on social media uh, and we have is using Instagram and LinkedIn to recruit, we have to be there. It doesn't matter if that makes us uncomfortable. Um, we have no choice. Like we have to be there. So, you know, I think those are the things that really sort of, you know, set that foundation for a lot of the changes that we made. And then uh, I think we weren't afraid to make mistakes. We tried a couple things. They didn't work. We like, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. Um, and if you're going to radically overhaul something, Something is not going to work, but you just have to be like, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, iterate again um, and not beat yourself up too much uh, about it. Just, you know, try some things, what works, keep that part, what doesn't work, try something else, keep that part, and just keep trying to make it better and better and better. Uh, for those of you listening, just speaking more to the numbers of what Peter was able to do over this rehaul, the FBI set a target goal of 16,000 applicants a year for their special agent program. And Peter was able to bring the number from what was originally an insufficient 12.5,000 to over double in the course of a year to 27,000 
applicants. And beyond that, addressing more of the diversity concerns, uh, he was able to increase minority applicants from 36% to 45% and female applications from 19% to 34%, which is a historical high for the FBI. So kudos to you for, first of all, being able to do that. But beyond that, I think it's so interesting to know, what do you think is really the value in having a diverse applicant pool and diverse talent pool, especially for a federal um, organization like FBI. Yeah, um, I think what it really comes down to is that uh, as a law enforcement agency, specifically the FBI, uh, if we don't look like the American people, we are going to lose our credibility as a law enforcement agency. What we are literally, yeah, we are literally representing the um, interests of uh, you know the the wide swath of America and the American population. And that population is getting more diverse, right? So we're all watching the demographic. 2050-ish, uh, we're going to become a majority minority nation. Uh, and we have to be there at the same time. Um, for the, uh, and I think that's, that's the thing for every government agency, right? If you're representing the people, you have to look like the people. Um, if there are no LGBTQ uh, candidates in your applicant process, Nobody is bringing up the idea of, hey, should we have a, a gender non-binary uh, option in our, you know, applicant tracking system? Um, nobody's bringing that forward because there isn't that enough, there's no diversity in-house to even ask that question, right? So uh, you have to bring that diversity in. They bring tons of new questions um, and challenges before, and you have to deal with that because that's what, again, the population is dealing with. I think that for us specifically, um, the organization really struggled with why that would be so important um, because that seems like a very abstract uh, need. And, you know, in the urgency of day-to-day -day operations in organizations like the FBI, um, abstract things tend to get pushed down the road because we have very concrete needs today. Um, but as I said in this, um, this uh, earlier session that you referenced, the way we solve that is we define that lack of diversity as an operational risk, right? We directly link that to... Um, communities that we can't uh, interact with, uh, victims that we can't comfort, um, uh, insight into foreign operators that we might not have uh, in the minute. Uh, we defined it as operational risk. That is the language the FBI understands. The light bulbs went off and they're like, oh man, that is operational risk. We really do need to do something about that. I'm like, uh, yeah. So, um, which was great because uh, again, I think, you know, if you're going to be in an organization and you're trying to make change within an organization, um, trying to advocate for change in a language that the organization doesn't really value or understand is wasting your time. You really have to figure out, you know, yeah. how what you're trying to do aligns with the long-term interest, the business interest, or in this case, the, the operational interest of the, of the FBI. Uh, and that's how you, you know, that's how you close the deal. That's how you make the sale. Uh, that's how you get stuff done. Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. And I know that there were a couple of key stakeholders that you listed that were kind of involved in the process of this transformation. One of them was LinkedIn, one of them was Accenture. And there's kind of this ideology within the industry where organizations that are in the public sector are more late adopters of transformative technologies, whether that be something like blockchain or big data. So I'd love to hear your opinion on how the FBI plans on kind of taking advantage of these emerging trends in the market. and if the public sector is lagging behind as much as everyone thinks it is? Uh, yeah, awesome question. We spend a lot of time um, thinking about what the future of work looks like and what the future of um, talent acquisition, recruiting and hiring looks like. Um, I think a couple trends we see, 
Um, uh, one good trend for us is, you know, when you do all these surveys, you know, all these organizations do these surveys about what matters most uh, to people uh, when they're trying to find a place to work. Is it uh, salary? Is it benefits? Is it flexibility? Um, well, the one thing that tops the survey um, again and again and again is we want to do work that is meaningful, uh, work that we feel has an impact. I'm like, great, we're there. That is something we can, you know, speak to immediately, right? Um, yeah, for sure. I think that things the FAA is going to, you know, struggle with, um, definitely flexibility, work-life balance, you know, um, that's definitely something that a lot of government agencies struggle with. I think that um, uh, taking advantage of technology is always rough when you are, uh, you have significant uh, security concerns around IT, uh, which a lot of organizations do, uh, but we literally have classified information. So there is a, um, there's an extra layer of security. It's not just people's um, or employees' private information, which of course is sensitive enough, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, there are these extra layers of sensitivity. So, um, you know, I think we're just always gonna, you know, struggle with like how much IT to use and what, uh, what off the shelf or software as a service can we use because, you know, what are the various equities at play? Um, I think one other thing, you know, definitely telework is going to be a huge uh, issue. Obviously, it's the, the pandemic. Um, I think one thing the Bureau has found is um, you actually can get more done teleworking than you thought you could. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if that uh, stays. Um, and then uh, one other trend I think that's growing, we're starting to see, you know, there's been a lot of movement toward, um, you know, obviously bringing more diversity into the workplace, more engagement with not just minorities, um, LGBTQ individuals. I think uh, persons with disabilities is going to be a big uh, trend. We're starting to see a lot and we're starting to talk more about um, how to bring neuroatypical individuals into a larger organization in a way that makes sense. Uh, if sometimes they struggle with the traditional, uh, you know, acquisition interview process, um, what is the way to tackle that? That's a huge um, piece of the labor market that's not really, um, that's not effectively tapped. Uh, so we're just having a lot of conversations about that. And then uh, once you bring them in, can you keep them uh, from that sense of inclusion, right? So like, can you make sure that their mm -hmm. uh, interests are in fact uh, met once they're in the organization, not just, you know, bringing them in, but like making sure that they're valued once they're in the organization. I think that's hard for anybody. Um, uh, so I think that's just something we're gonna continue. We've made tons of strides, but like continue to work, you know, work on that as well. Yeah, and I guess out of curiosity, when you're thinking about who to send to Quantico next year, what separates a good candidate from a great candidate? Uh, yeah, we, we sort of talked about a little bit um, about that earlier, but I would say um, uh, you have to have what we call learning agility, uh, confidence that you can learn new things and that you'll, you can learn them well. Uh, that's super important. Um, I would say a, a willingness to tackle whatever you're given, not just be... Um, I'm super excited about the things I'm excited about and I'll do those things well. And then the parts of my job that I'm not excited about, I'll kind of, um, you know, not do well. Um, so that's always a problem. We always lose a couple interns every summer that way uh, when they're like, well, can't I just do something else? I'm like, no, that's what I need you to do. So um, I would say, yeah, being willing to tackle all those things. Um, I would say uh, you have to be, you know, we often, I often say to folks, you can be, um, super skilled, like a great subject matter expert. You can have great interpersonal skills um, or you can work super fast and super clean, you know, meeting every deadline. And you almost, you have to have two of those three things to be successful, right? 
if you are amazingly a subject matter expertise and you work fast and clean, maybe your interpersonal skills can be a little less developed. If your interpersonal skills are amazing and you work super fast and clean, if your skill set is maybe not as strong, they will take you 100% over somebody that is very, very skilled but a total jerk to work with. Um, so I would say just making sure you understand that being a great subject matter expert is never enough. Um, those interpersonal skills uh, and the ability to produce are really important. Um, and then just going back to this idea of lifelong learning, like every situation, every task you're given, um, every situation you're in, whether it's good or bad, there's always something you can learn from that. There's always a takeaway. Um, we want people that are self-reflective, that learn from uh, their mistakes, uh, that apply that learning later. You know, one of the best interview questions I think you can ask is, um, tell me about a time when you totally screwed up, uh, it was totally your fault, uh, and how did you learn from that experience? Uh, because that really tells you, mm -hmm. are you the kind of person that's reflective and honest uh, with yourself, um, but you have really thought about it and grown from that experience? And that is the kind of person that we want, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. And I guess you touched on my next question, which is actually going to be, what are some key characteristics that you can identify within yourself that have allowed you to be so successful in what you do? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, again, obviously I've been super lucky uh, and really privileged, as I uh, mentioned before. Um, I would say, I think that, uh, one, I try to be a very positive person because um, there are enough negative people in the workplace. Uh, so I, uh, and, and if that means you have to fake it, then freaking fake it. Uh, so um, just do it, right? Um, just don't bring the negativity in, leave it, you know, have your venting partner, like I'm a vent for 20 minutes, great, start the clock, vent, get it out of your system and go back. Um, I feel like I have a pretty good reputation for being a pragmatic person that can get stuff done. Um, I definitely think that uh, one of my strengths is um, not waiting for some pure, perfect solution um, that might take a while, but would be, you know, in the perfect world, this will be great. I'm like, okay, but we don't live in a perfect world and I need something to happen today. So what is the best option we can do today? Understand what the risks are, try to mitigate those, but then move forward. That's always the better solution. Um, just understand what your risks are, right? Um, and then I think also, you know, uh, I didn't really realize this until much later in my career, but when I lived in Japan uh, for those two years early after college, I was the only uh, West, uh, you know, American in my town. I lived in the real country. Um, so everything I did, I was really under the microscope for uh, do all Americans do that way? You know, the weight of every American policy decision was on my shoulders. Right? Like, <laughs> why did the Americans bomb us in Pearl Harbor? Uh, I mean, in uh, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, things like that, right? Um, which, of course, that was a super uncomfortable place to be. Much later in my career, when I was in this HR role, we were starting to talk about the role of diversity and inclusion and you know, how it's so important to bring diverse, diversity in because you don't really understand uh, what that's like uh, to be the only you know, black or brown face in a room, or you don't really understand what it's like to be the only female special agent on operation. Um, I was like, yeah, I don't quite understand that, but I actually do have kind of a hint of it. I mean. Still, as a white guy in Japan, like, I'm still in a privileged, pretty privileged position, like, let's be clear. Uh, but I do understand what it's like to be the only white person in a, in a room, in a town, 
trying to like negotiate your way through an unfamiliar culture, a culture that maybe values different yeah. things that are opaque. Um, so I really felt like I learned a lot to really be very thoughtful about those kind of differences. You know, not that I'm perfect, but uh, that experience I think really informed, you know, my ability to be successful uh, with the foreign language program and in HR uh, later. I guess I didn't really put those pieces together till later, but like now I see that as a very seminal uh, experience early on uh, that really I feel gave me some great skill sets that I use today. Yeah, and I guess you talked a bit earlier about how one of the biggest traits that the FBI looks for is the ability to recognize and kind of learn from your mistakes. So I was wondering, looking back on your career more specifically, do you think that there would have been anything that you would have wanted to do differently? Oh man, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, I think there's sort of two things. I think that uh, I was really concerned about how other people thought about me early in my career. And I wish I had been less afraid earlier. Um, I wish I could go back to that 20 year old person and be like, look, uh, all those people you think are talking about you, they're not, they have super busy lives. They don't care. They're just trying to get stuff done. And if they are the kind of person that's talking about you and judging you, then they're not the kind of person whose opinion you really need to worry about. Uh, so let worry less about that uh, and do what you think is right for you. Uh, be braver. Um, so I think that was something, you know, both as a shy person, as an introvert, um, you know, growing through high school, college, that was something I really struggled with. Uh, and even early in my career, it took me a long time to feel really comfortable uh, with myself and, you know, feel like uh, I don't have to try to conform myself to what other people, you know, think. Um, so I would say that's the biggest uh, thing. On a practical thing, I wish I traveled more earlier. I mean, it's a lot easier to travel when you're single with no kids uh, than when you have two kids and <laughs> school PTA schedules and you're trying. And of course, um, obviously, you value your partner's life and what, what they're interested in and what they're doing. So uh, your time really is not your own anymore because, of course, you want to be there for them uh, and then you value that. Uh, so you're always juggling not just your needs, but their needs, um, which is great. Uh, but that does mean like, the ability to, hey, I wonder what it's like to live in Alaska. Let me just pick up and get an entry level job there and move. Like that's kind of off the table uh, once you really fail and have a family. So I guess I wish I lived in more parts of the country earlier in my career uh, just to have that experience. Mm -hmm. And I guess um, when everything is said and done for you in terms of your career, how do you want to be remembered and what do you want your legacy to look like? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think. I want to be um, remembered as a really positive person who is a great problem solver and helped us tackle some really challenging things, but really helped build the future of the FBI. And what I look at as my legacy is, I've been so fortunate uh, in my career to bring amazing people into the organization. And because they're so talented, they have just, you know, killed it and not done amazing things for the Bureau. And you, you watch them come in, have an entry level job, move up through the ranks, become a supervisor, you know, move, move higher. And as you watch them move, of course, their own skill set, everything they're bringing to the table is, is, is helping them move. But you feel that connection to, um, yeah, I was the one that helped, you know, bring them in at the front end. And because of that, they are able to do all these amazing things. So it's almost like your actions become multiplied 
through all of the yeah. amazing people you've been able to bring in. And like, I take a lot of pride in watching um, those people move through the ranks of the organization. Like my first intern I ever supervised is now a um, section chief in counterterrorism division um, after becoming an agent, wow. it's amazing. Uh, and so uh, I saw him on the promotion list and I emailed him, I was like, oh my God, that's so amazing. Uh, he's like, I didn't think you even remembered me. I was like, I definitely remember you. You were amazing as an intern and you're still amazing. So uh, yeah, that's just so awesome to see. Uh, that's just the best. Yeah, that's honestly a great way to end up. But before we do, I like to just ask one silly question. Or this one honestly isn't that silly. But with this whole pandemic going around, I know that it's limited the options of what a lot of people can do. So in a hypothetical ideal world, like you said, that we unfortunately do not live in. If COVID-19 was no longer an issue today, what is the first thing that you would do? Uh, yeah, so my uh, oldest daughter was supposed to move into college in Savannah, uh, and we were going to move her in, and then we were going to um, drive from Savannah back to Virginia, uh, basically taking a um, eating tour all along the way, barbecue, seafood, you know, all this oh. stuff, and we did, we did not get to do that. So uh, we had all these, we had literally Google mapped all, all the places we were going to eat because, you know, that's what we do. Um, <laughs> so I definitely moved my daughter to college, um, leave her there, go to these amazing places to eat, text her pictures of all the amazing things we're eating without her uh, and mock her while she's in class. Um, <laughs> definitely want, want to do that uh, still for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time out of your day. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure that everyone listening definitely learned a lot about you and your story. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. It was uh, great to chat with you. That concludes my conversation with Peter Searcy, head of recruitment at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. If any of you listening here today are interested in joining the FBI, whether that be as an intern or even a special agent, Applications are open at apply.fbijobs.gov. Also, remember to keep an eye out for the next episode of Industry Insights, where I'll be interviewing Paul Beltzow, Vice President of Business Development and Strategy at Salesforce. Thank you so much for listening, and remember to take care of yourself. And if you can, someone else as well. <laughs>